listening to the Living Room North Living Room North podcast. I am really excited for what's ahead for all of us tonight in this room as we finish up this series, Heart to Heart, Understanding God's Love for Us. But before we jump in, I kind of want to get a feel for who's in the room with me, like who is my people. Uh, So here's what I want to know. Anyone in the room, raise your hand if you have ever had a season of your life where you drove a junky car. Like, you know what it's like to be broken down on the side of the road. You've put water in your radiator before. Anybody with me, you know? Yes, you are my people. I feel you, I see you, I get it. And here's the thing, I believe that driving a junky car, I fully believe it builds character. So congratulations, you had some character building in your life. I have driven many a junkie car. Uh, I now, I am an adult with a paying job and and two kids almost that I've got to keep safe. And so the car I have now, it is reliable, it is safe, uh, it's a great car, it has a backup cam, it beeps anytime I get close to anything, which praise God for that. I do not know what I did before that technology But before I had this car, I was at the will of my dad's preferences with cars. Like my early driving years, maybe like some of you, I just got whatever car was handed to me from my dad. And let me tell you about my dad. My dad is one of the kindest, most generous, most thoughtful humans in the world. I love this man. But my dad is also one of the cheapest humans that I know. Like my dad, most of his clothes come from Dollar General. He loves a good Dollar General purchase. He loves a good $1,000 to $2,000 car. Like that's where we're gonna sit. He cannot fathom why anyone would buy a new car. Every car he's ever owned has been from Craigslist, in fact. I think my dad owns about six cars right now, no lie, that only he drives. And the sum total worth of those six cars is probably less than $10,000, for real. This is like, he, he sees a deal on Craigslist, he's like, gotta have it. There's like 15 problems with that car, doesn't matter. Eventually, he'll fix them. And so when I turned 16, I was handed the keys to a 1992 single cab Chevy Silverado, and I think we're gonna throw it up on the screen. Yeah! <laughs> This is my pride and joy, this truck. Um, And before you judge me, this photo is from the first day of my senior year of high school. So you'll notice the Guy Harvey t-shirt because we all had to have one of those, country girl, you know what I'm saying? And then you'll notice this hideous crossbody bag that's like just hanging around my neck. I don't know what's going on there. But the real star in this photo is this truck, Uh, my dad. He bought this truck off of a family friend. I don't know how many miles it already had on it when he bought the truck. And my dad drove the truck and then my brother drove the truck and then my other brother drove the truck and then it became mine. And it has this beautiful, you can't tell from where you are probably, but it has this beautiful maroon cloth interior. Like, mm, it was wonderful. By the time I got it, it did not have a radio. The radio unit had just been pulled out and never replaced. It did not have air conditioning. And so I would ride to school in the mornings uh, with the windows down and I would put my phone in a plastic solo cup to like get the sound going a little bit, you know, like I put water in the radiator at least once a week. Like this 
was a junky car, but it got me where I needed to go. It was old faithful. I loved this truck. But my sophomore year in high school, no, my sophomore year in college, uh, some things went a little bit sideways with my truck. One day I was out shopping and I pulled up to a red light to get off of the highway and get up, get back on my road. And the light turns green and my truck stalls out. And then it just like completely shuts off. And so I'm, I'm having this panic moment that maybe you've been in before where I, the light is green, I'm in the front of the line. And so I'm like trying to turn the truck over again and again, nothing's happening, it's not clicking. People are honking at me. Luckily my windows were already down. So I'm just like waving people around. I have no idea what to do. And luckily some really kind bystanders, they, bystanders? bystanders they jump out of their cars and they come over and they helped me push the truck out of the road and, and out of oncoming traffic. And what I didn't know is that when I got in the truck that day, it had a leak, a leak in the oil. And as I was driving throughout the day, this leak got worse and worse. I, I had no idea it was happening. And what actually happened when the truck stalled out is that I killed the engine like totally done, not coming back to life. There's no oil in the truck, engine gone. In this moment, I came to realize that my truck, it had a problem. It had a massive problem, a massive leak, but I was completely unaware of it. And the reality is that a problem that we're unaware of, it can be the worst kind of problem because we don't know to do anything about it until it's maybe too late. And tonight, I, I wanna give you a heads up, especially for those of you in the room that would call yourself a follower of Jesus. I wanna give you a heads up that we're gonna talk about a problem that Jesus illuminates for us, a problem that many of us in the room have, most of us, in the room that we may be totally unaware of. But this problem, it has pretty drastic implications. You see, the past few weeks, we've been in this series called Heart to Heart, and we've been talking about what it's like to have a heart to heart. Maybe you've had a heart to heart with a friend or a family member or in a relationship, and you know that when you're having a heart to heart, it's so that you can create relational space to do one of three things. It's to communicate intention, to clarify misunderstanding, and to challenge wrong thinking. You see, when we have a heart to heart, we're doing some of these things. But in this series, we haven't been talking about a heart to heart from me to you. We've been talking about the heart of God for his people. In the past two weeks, we got to hear from our friend Brad Horton, and then we got to hear from our friend Chad Ward, and they kicked us off by telling us about these three parables that we find in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 15. These three parables that Jesus tells to a group of people. And what Chad told us last week is that a parable is essentially a story, a story that isn't true to teach us something that is true. And, and at the beginning of, of Luke chapter 15, Luke tells us a little bit about why Jesus is telling these parables. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners 
were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we see here in in the story that Jesus has people gathered around. And, And on one side of the table, he's got the tax collectors and the sinners. These would have been the religious outsiders of the day, the people on the fringes, And and on the other side of the table, he's got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These would have been the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so he's got two very groups of people at the table. And, And what's true about these groups of people and what we see throughout the gospels over and over again is, is that the irreligious, they loved Jesus. They followed Jesus around. They wanted to hear what he had to say but that the religious of the day, they kind of hated Jesus. They could not understand why Jesus would hang out with sinners and tax collectors. They could not fathom why Jesus would be around these people that they saw as unclean and unholy and unworthy. And so we, we've said this every week, but if you've missed a week or or if you just have forgotten, that's totally fine too. I just wanna say this so that we're all on the same page. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they used religion as a system of exclusion. They used religion as a system of exclusion so that they could draw a line in the sand and say, hey, these people, these people that behave this way and that act this way and that do these things, these people belong in the family of God but these people don't. These people are in, these people are out. These people are included, these people are excluded. They used this system of exclusion to cut people out that they thought didn't belong in the family of God. And so Jesus, he he has these people sitting around and he goes into these three stories to communicate the heart of God to communicate the intention of of why he came, to clarify misunderstanding that the people sitting around had about who God was and to challenge their wrong thinking. And in in week one, our friend Brad, he, he talked us through the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And in both of these stories, we see that the main character, the shepherd and the woman, that they have lost something that is of great value to them. And, and they'll do anything. They're searching, they're looking, they're turning things over to find the thing they've lost. And at the end of both stories, they find it. They, he finds the sheep, she finds the coin, and they are overjoyed. They are rejoicing, they're celebrating, they're so excited that they have found what once was lost. And in these stories, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and and the religious leaders and, and the tax collectors and the sinners, he's saying, hey, I have come to find the lost. I have come to seek out those who are far from God. And last week, Chad launched us in to the third parable that we look at. And it's called the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. And in this story, maybe you've heard it before, maybe you've heard it a hundred times, maybe it was new to you last week, but in this story, we see the story of a father who's got these two sons. 
And the younger son or the younger brother, he goes to the father and he says, hey, I want my inheritance and I want it now. It kind of makes me think of that like uh, Willy Wonka scene where she's like, I want it now. Like he goes to the father and he's like, I don't care if you're alive or dead, doesn't matter to me. I want my inheritance now, which in this day and age would have been incredibly disrespectful and hurtful. But the father obliges and, and he gives the younger brother his inheritance. And the scripture tells us that he goes off and he squanders his wealth with wild living now, we don't know exactly what that means. Jesus doesn't give us all the nitty gritty details, but we do hear later in the scripture that he squanders this money on things like prostitutes. We can imagine with wild living that it's things like partying and, and gambling. He goes out and he wastes all of his money on these things of the world. And then he finds himself in deep need and desperate need, so much so that he has nothing to eat. Like he's starving to death. And so he decides, I'm going to go back to my father's house and I'm going to beg to simply be a servant so that I can have something to eat. And so he goes back to the father's house and the scripture says that the father sees him far off in the distance. And the father runs after him and throws open his arms and embraces him. That he rejoices that his son has come home, that he is so excited and he throws this massive celebration. And we see in this story, the heart of God, this beautiful picture of the unconditional love and forgiveness and mercy of our God. But that's only half of the parable. That's really only the first half. You see, Jesus has been building the tension up to this moment. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law that are listening they had a problem that they were completely unaware of. You see, they're, they're listening to these stories and they're like, we just don't get it. We, we don't understand why you hang out with these people. We can't fathom. Like they fall so short of, of reaching God. These Pharisees and these, these teachers of the law, they had a superiority complex in the name of religion. They thought that they were better. They thought that they were higher. They thought that they reached the standard and that none of these people could ever get there. And so Jesus is like, hey, I want you to lean in because this story, it's not over. And each of the last two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, they end with the celebration. And so everyone's sitting nearby, they hear about the prodigal son and, and that the father is celebrating and they're like, okay, this must be the end of the story. And, and they start packing up their things. They're like, all right, sermon's over. Where are we going to lunch? Like, we feeling Moe's today? We feeling Chipotle? Like, well, what are you thinking? And Jesus is like, sit back down. We're not done yet. We got more to go. And so Jesus, he goes on in the story. He says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, Chad told us a lot about the younger brother last week, but we know in the story that there are two brothers and that when the younger brother goes off and, and wastes all his money in wild living, the older brother stays put. It says he was working in the field. He stayed in his father's house. He was obedient. He was respectful, dutiful. 
He's working hard for the family. And we see that he's coming up to the house. He hears music and dancing. And the reality is he has no idea that his brother has come home. He, he doesn't know that his brother is home and that his father is celebrating. It goes on, it says, so he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now I imagine the servant in this moment, he's like, dude, you don't know, like your brother's home, it's awesome. Like he's safe, he made it back, he's here. And guess what? Like your dad throwing a big party. It's gonna be awesome. Like kill the fattened calf, like we're eating good, it's awesome. I imagine the servant is expecting the older brother to be so pumped to hear this, to be so excited and overjoyed that his brother is back home. But it's not the response that he gets. It says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So in this moment, I, I bet the servant's like, whoa, wasn't expecting this. Like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going back to the party. You good? Like, we're good. Okay, cool. Thought you were going to be excited. You're not. That's fine. Not a big deal. Like he is expecting excitement and joy and celebration from the older brother. But instead, instead, the older brother responds in anger. He's like, oh, my, my younger brother is home. My, my younger brother who disrespected our dad, my younger brother who took some of the inheritance and totally blew it, my younger brother who humiliated our family, oh, so glad he's home and my dad is celebrating him. I don't love this. Like the older brother is so angry, so much so that he won't even go into the celebration. He's like outside pouting, I'm not going in. This is ridiculous. And in this moment, we see Jesus, the master storyteller. He's giving us a very stark contrast between the response of mercy and acceptance of the Father and anger and resentment of the older brother. And in this moment, I would imagine the Pharisees that are sitting and listening, they hear about this older brother and they're like, yeah, we get this guy. Like finally someone who makes sense. Like he's holding people accountable. He's doing what's right. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is holding a mirror up to the Pharisees and he's like, hey, this is, this is you. But the reality is, the older brother's heart. It couldn't be farther from the heart of the father. And so the father, he hears that the older brother, he won't come in, that he's angry. And so he goes out to find him. He goes looking. It says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. The father heard he was angry he didn't just say, whatever, I'm gonna let him cool off. Like we're having a party, He's, he can do his thing. No, he goes out looking for him, searching for him, seeking him out. And, and when he finds him, he doesn't berate him. Oh, no Siri, not you. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't yell at him. He, he's not like, dude, put on a smile, get your act together and go to the party. Like he doesn't do any of those things. 
Instead, it says he pleaded with him. He's like, hey, come to the party with me. You come and be in the celebration with us. Come be in the family with me. I want you there. And in the same way that he's inviting the older brother back in, Jesus is inviting the Pharisees in to what he's doing. But the older brother, he, he's not having any of it. He says, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And if you are a sibling in the room, you have experienced a moment like this maybe. Like he's having this sibling pouty moments. He's like, what in the world? I did everything right. He's done nothing right. You're giving him what? I should get that. That should be my calf. What are, what are you thinking? What are you doing? He is an adult man throwing a full-blown tantrum. Like he's so mad. He just can't understand the father's reasoning. He does not approve of the father's acceptance of the younger brother. And again, the father responds to the older brother with grace. He's not like, gosh, you're, you're being a little bit entitled. Hey, you're, you're being a little bit judgmental. Like, hey, this is, this is my house and my party and my son. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. The father responds to the older brother with grace and mercy and tenderness. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I imagine this father in this moment, he's like, hey, like you have been in my house all along. Everything that I have is yours. My love is yours. You have been in my care. And just because I've put my robe on your brother and, and I've put rings on his fingers and we killed the fattened calf, none of that means that I love your brother any more than I love you. It is simply a symbol to your brother that he is still my son, that he always has been, just like you have always been my son. You see, the father in this story, what's crazy is we always pay attention to the moment where he goes out and runs towards the younger brother, where he goes and seeks him out. But we miss the fact that he goes and looks for the older brother, that he seeks him out. Because the older brother, in fact, was lost. He stayed home all along. He did all of the right things. He was obedient to the father, but we see that the motivation and the intention of his actions, it, it wasn't out of love and relationship to the father. It was out of a desire to gain approval or to get a reward. But in both stories, the father seeks them out. He searches them down and he offers them both grace and mercy. You see, I think when we think about this story as the story of the prodigal son, we sometimes miss the whole picture. 
And I wonder if a better title for this story would sound something like this, the the parable of two lost sons. Because both are lost. One form of lostness is, is just more obvious than the other. Both brothers had a problem, a sin problem. One brother was aware and the other was not. See, the younger brother, his problem, it was wrongdoing. It was going out and making a a lot of the wrong decisions in big and public and outward ways. He, He made a lot of wrong choices. But then he came to his senses and he saw his need and he returned to the father. And the older brother, his his problem wasn't wrongdoing because on paper, he'd done everything right. He'd been obedient. He'd been dutiful. He'd been respectful. He'd stayed all along. But his problem was in his right doing. Because sometimes in our pursuit of doing things right, in our pursuit of being obedient to the Father, there can be this dark underbelly that we don't see coming. And something grows in us that grew in the older brother that looks like resentment, it looks like judgment, it looks like entitlement, self-righteousness, selfishness, You see, the reality for us that's hard to swallow, but I do think is true, is we might have a little more older brother in us than we would like to admit. We might have a little bit more of the older brother than we'd like to admit. And I think that looks like when we feel that resentment that bubbles up because something good happens to someone who we don't think deserves it, or they get the praise or the accolades or, or the glory that we want and we think should be ours. It looks like when that pride comes up or we think we're better than, or we hear what our, our roommate is doing or, or our friends are doing and we're like, gosh, why can they not just get their act together? Like, why can they not just get it right? It's the judgment that we feel when we see somebody walk into a church And we think that what they're doing on the weekends doesn't align with that. And we go, why are they here? It doesn't make sense. It's the selfishness that tells us that God's grace is limited and that only a few of us can actually earn it. It's the entitled attitude that when we think we've been doing the right things or following God or being obedient, that now he owes us something or that we deserve something. It's that older brother in us. And the reality is that the toxic religiosity, it misses the heart of God. Just like the older brother was missing the heart of the father, just like the Pharisees were missing the heart of Jesus, this toxic religiosity of doing the right things for all the wrong reasons it misses the heart of God. And, and I've, I've been thinking about myself in this story as I've been reading through this story and preparing for tonight. And, and to give you a little background on me, I started to follow Jesus uh, right around my junior year of high school. 
I made the decision to follow Jesus and I became very aware of my sin for the first time. I became aware of the depth of my sin, of the gravity of my sin. I was in a dark place in the beginning of high school and I decided to try and fill the void that I felt with all of the things of the world, with just temporary happiness, temporary escape. I partied a lot, I drank a lot, I smoked a lot. I got in relationships I never should have been in. I treated people poorly to boast myself up. I misused relationships. I used people for my gain. And on this particular night, all of this wreck of my life came to a head. And I saw my sin for what it was. And I wept. Like, I cried and I cried and I cried because I was heartbroken over the life that I'd been living. And for the first time, God's grace was apparent to me. And I was shocked by it. I could not believe or understand or fathom that after all that I'd done, that God would still want me, that he would still pursue me, that he would still call me a daughter. It seemed too good to be true. And let me tell you, my gratitude for God's grace, it was through the roof. I was on fire for Jesus and and I decided to follow after him. And that was about 10 years ago, I guess a little over 10 years ago now. And since then, I've been on this journey of following Jesus, of doing my best to do that. It has not looked perfect by any means, but I have never gotten back to that place of these public outward wreck of a life that I was living. And if I'm honest, in the last 10 years, I've drifted from that story of the prodigal son that, that I once saw myself so much in. You see, I've worked in, on staff at a church as an intern or, or an employee for about 10 years now, and I've heard this story of the prodigal son over and over and over again. And when I hear it, if I'm sitting in a room like this, I often think, yes, that was me. I was the prodigal son. That was me at 16 exactly. Or when I hear it, I think about the people in the room who might be living in that life of these public outward sins. And I think, gosh, I hope, I hope that they hear this and they want to turn to Jesus. Or if I'm honest, I hear the story of the prodigal son and, and I hear about the older brother. And I think about the people in the room who are judgmental. And I'm like, yeah, I hope that you know you're the older brother. Like, I hope you heard this. I hope you feel bad about it. And I, I sit there and I judge people for judging people, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you think about it. And if I'm honest, as I've looked at this story over the past few weeks and, and I've sat in it, God has been wrecking me. Because for so long I've heard the story and, and I've, I've thought it was for my past self or for someone else in the room. But this week, God has made clear to me, no, no, I'm sorry, sister, but you're in there. You are the older brother. Because in the past 10 years, as I've tried to follow after Jesus, I've grown apathetic or unaware 
or unconcerned with my sin because it doesn't quite look like it used to look. And the reality is, is I think that many of you in the room, you're probably like me. Maybe some of you in the room, you decided to give your life to Jesus earlier on. You had a prodigal son moment. And since then, you feel like you've been doing pretty good. You've been doing the right things. You've, you've, you're kind of skimming by. You're like, oh, when we talk about sin, like that's for somebody else. Like my sin, it's like not a big deal. Other people's sin though, they need to hear this. Some of you in the room, you'd say, I've been in the church since I was born. And you've just been kind of on the straight and narrow. You've made great decisions. And when you hear a sermon about, about sin or about the prodigal son, you're like, yeah, I hope, I hope they're in the room. Like, this isn't really for me because that's not like I'm a sinner, you know, but I'm not a big sinner. I think a lot of us in the room can relate to that. And I wonder if Jesus was sitting with us today, he'd be like, brother, sister, look in the mirror. There is some older brother in there and we've got to root that out. Because the heart of the older brother, it is so far from the heart of the father. You see, that the story of the, the prodigal son, the two lost sons, it's not about good and bad. It's really not much about the sons at all. In fact, it's mostly about the father, about an unending, reckless, consistent love of God. And so I think if I could rename the parable, it, it would look something more like this. The parable of the gracious father. That's what I think Jesus wanted the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the religious leaders to hear in this moment is that they all had a gracious father. Because the gospel, it boils down to this, and, and this is true for all of them sitting there. It's that everyone is wrong, but that everyone is loved. And that no one earned it, not one, none of us. And so whether you came in the room tonight thinking like, wow, the, the weight of my sin, it, it is apparent, it feels heavy, like I, I'm trying to figure this out. Or if you came in the room like, oh no, like, I, I'm doing pretty good. And now you're thinking, maybe I'm not doing so good. Wherever you are in the room, this is true for you. If you can earn God's love, everyone has to. If you can do it, everyone has to. It's an all skate. But if you can't, then no one can. If you cannot earn God's love, not a single one of us can be expected to do that. So why do we hold other people to this standard that we do not hold ourselves to? You see, I think when we have a clear level of spiritual awareness, a clear picture of our sin and of God's grace, we can cultivate these things that the Pharisees lacked and that the older brother lacked. We can cultivate, there we go, a clear picture of our sin where we don't maximize it, but we don't minimize it, where we don't see it through the lens of comparison to other people or comparison to our old self, we see it for what it is. Because when we have a clear picture and understanding of our sin, we have a clear picture of the depth of God's grace. We can cultivate a divine capacity to extend grace 
Because when we see that the Father is running after those who are lost, is extending grace and mercy, who are we not to do the same? And we can cultivate a heart that celebrates. We should be the first to celebrate when a brother or a sister who was lost is found, comes home, wants to know more about Jesus, no matter what they did outside of these walls, if they show up here, if they ask a question about Jesus, if they're like, oh, tell me more, we should be the first in line to celebrate when we have a clear picture of our sin and God's grace. We can cultivate these things. And I think that has the power to change our faith and to change this church. I want to finish our night with an excerpt from a devotional that I've been reading, just a short little section. And this devotion is a journey through the Lent season. And not Lent like in your dryer or in your belly button. Lent as the season leading up to Easter. If, If you're not familiar with that, it's the 40 days on the liturgical calendar where we prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter Sunday where Jesus resurrected after being crucified. And churches throughout history, they've observed Lent in different ways. But one of the ways that we can think about Lent is to prepare our hearts and minds for the cross by paying attention to our sin, by grieving our sin. Because the reality is, if we had no sin, there would not be a need for the cross. And so I just, I want to read this to you, and then we'll finish out together. This is uh, Paul David Tripp. He says, The Lenten season is about the sin that was the reason for the suffering and the sacrifice of the Savior. It's about taking time to reflect on why we all needed such a radical move of redemption, to confess the hold that sin still has on us, and to focus on opening our hands in confession and submission, letting go of sin once again. But as we do this, it's important to remember that the knowledge of sin is not a dark and nasty thing, but a huge and wonderful blessing. If you're aware of your sin, you're aware of it, only because you have been visited by amazing grace. Don't resist that awareness. Silence your inner lawyer in all the self-defending arguments for your righteousness. Quit relieving your guilt by pointing a finger of blame at someone else and stop telling yourself in the middle of a sermon that you know someone who really needs to hear it. Be thankful that you have been chosen to bear the burden of the knowledge of sin because that burden is what drove you and will continue to drive you to seek the help and rescue that only the Savior Jesus can give. To see sin clearly is surely a sign of God's grace. Be thankful.